Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to guests about their favorite albums. Today we're talking with Derek Zanetti of the band The Homeless Gospel Choir. We talked about Beach Boys' 1967 album, Smiley Smile. We also talk about the smile sessions and growing up in religious households, which led to both of us playing catch-up with our relationships with secular music and, dare I say, making us obsessive. The Homeless Gospel Choir released their latest album, This Land Is Your Landfill, in 2020 on AF Records and are set to release a new album through Don Giovanni Records later this year. Catch them on tour with My Chemical Romance and Thursday this fall. If you like what we do on the main feed, then please check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. My co-host Sarah and I, we talk about records we liked a lot when we were younger and revisit them as much older and jaded individuals. Subscribe for as little as $1 a month and get an exclusive episode every week. It really sincerely helps us keep doing what we're doing and we super appreciate the support. In regards to the state of the world today, please check out your local abortion access funds. I would recommend donationsforabortion.com. That's donations, the number four, abortion.com. Anything you can give sincerely helps right now. Okay, no delays. Let's chat with Derek. Continue. I'm continuing. You have my consent to record. To yeah. record. You have to post that long thing on Facebook. You gotta. I gotta yeah. let them know that this is. Not, I'm not here against my will. Nobody has walked me into this room. Nobody has forced me against my better judgment to take this interview. I did this on my own free will and my own understanding, and I'm thankful to do it, Joshua Robbins. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. Um, so. How are you doing today? Um, I think I'm doing pretty good. Um, I um, I got a bad iced tea from Dunkin' Donuts yesterday. I think they gave me like half coffee, half iced tea. I um, There's a Dunkin' Donuts close. And for $2.50, you can't say no to a large iced tea, especially whenever it's, you know, super hot. Yeah, yeah. But, I, you know, uh, there it's most no disrespect to high school kids but there's mostly high school kids that work there and i think they're just like it doesn't matter we're just gonna put half coffee half iced tea in there he'll be gone he's not gonna swing back around and wait in a 20 minute line to you know get a two dollar iced tea he'll probably just drink it or complain which i didn't you know complain i did drink the whole thing even though it was um i would give it maybe like a two out of ten mm, oh was that bad it was a pretty bad and you know listen i'm i I'm not going to kick you out of bed for one small infraction, Dunkin' Donuts. I do, you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm a, I'm a creature of habit for better or for worse. And um, I, I'm going to go back, but I did, you know, I just wanted to let you know that here in Lancaster, I did have a bad experience. Um, yeah. At well, that Dunkin' Donut. I think they could have, I think they could have treated me a little better than they did, but um, I'm going to forgive them because, you know, for the price, I can't say no. Well, I'm glad that was on the positive side because we do have a Dunkin' Donuts ad that goes on this podcast. So, oh, sick. Uh, I th- yeah, so I won't have to edit that out. Well, if you uh, ever want to get a hold, if you know anybody in the corporate office or you know anybody who's kicking around up there, you know, you have my email, you have my number. Go ahead and just slot it on into them. I'd like to get sponsored by Dunkin' Donuts. It's the place that we go on tour the most. 
um, yeah. in the mornings. You can always, everybody, especially whenever they have the, the vegan sausage. I mean, we, we drove, we drove um, miles. We drove miles out of our way to get um, Dunkin' Donuts vegan sandwiches whenever those came out. Um, yeah. And even without them, you know, some people, some people will just have, you know, the egg and cheese and then everybody can just go ahead and have a large coffee or a large iced tea there. So Dunkin' Donuts is a place that we do like to go. And typically I am, um, I'm pro Dunkin' D's. Like I am pro it. I just yeah. have to go ahead and say, you know, even Babe Ruth struck out and yesterday Dunkin' Donuts had, and I just had, you know, a not fortunate time together. I'm gonna give them another swing. I'll probably be back again tomorrow. Uh, one thing I was thinking recently, I was like, is it just a product of getting older or has Dunkin' Donuts gotten worse? Well, I do think it's expansion. I think that it's it probably is difficult to do quality control whenever you're growing as fast as you are. I remember Dunkin' Donuts being different. We also had stick donut options in Pittsburgh where I grew up. Um, like we had Donut Connection, Mr. Donut. Um, we had uh, in our little neighborhood and on 8th Avenue in Hempstead, they had A&B, which is Armin, which was this super old guy who um, his back was, was he, he from rolling donuts and hunching over his entire life making donuts. He always had this hunch to him. But if you went there, if you didn't go there at six o'clock on a Saturday morning for cinnamon rolls, there's no chance that you would get one. The cinnamon mm. rolls went super duper fast and he was not stingy with the cinnamon either, which is why he had the good reputation that he did. But we had great donut options. You can go to Jimmy's and Braddock and get those those red eye, uh, they were um, a custard, they were a custard stuffed donut. And then in the very middle had raspberry jam. The red eyes mm -hmm. were amazing donuts. But yeah, I mean, Dunkin' Donuts pretty much has corner on the market now. And, you know, small little independent donut shops are struggling because it's hard to compete with the, the, the super cheap prices that you pay by getting the Dunkin' Donuts, you know, donuts just, you know, they don't have to make them there. They just get them delivered in these big, huge trucks and, you know, put them out for people to have. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, are they going downhill or have they expanded too much? I don't know if I have an answer for that, but I can, I can agree with you. Um, I can agree with you roundly, Joshua Robbins, that um, it's not the way that it was when we were younger. I will say that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we aren't talking donuts today. We are actually talking about Beach Boys' 12th record, Smiley Smile, that came out in 1967, and that came out on Capitol Records. And what I'll ask is, when was the first time you heard the Beach Boys or this record? Well, I can't say when the first time I heard this record was, but whenever I was younger, my pap would always listen to 3WS, which was the oldies station here in Pittsburgh, all mm -hmm. oldies all the time and um we would listen to the beach boys and they would have like frank sinatra and they would have oh what a night late december back in 63 you know um yeah. that type of stuff um and you know like old, an oldie station you know frankie valley johnny angel and the halos um uh the temptations chuck berry um uh uh um uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, Elvis Presley, that kind of yeah. stuff. And we would get on there and they would have the, the Beatles too. And then we would listen to the Beach Boys. Um, so I think the first time that I was listening to the Beach Boys, I would imagine was in very, very young stages of my life, 
probably anywhere between like three and six, um, listening to him with my pap in his basement. Um, my, my grandma and grandpa had a big, huge garden and they would go there and work in the back in the garden and, and whatnot. Um, uh, but yeah, I think I, I would probably say very, very young. I remember listening to the Beach Boys. Yeah, I feel like I've always up up until a point, like I felt like I always had like a passive relationship with them. It's it's almost like but I also felt like I heard them more than the Beatles. Like when I'm thinking about those oldie stations, I mm-hmm. felt like outside of like, I want to hold your hand. You, sure. For some reason, I don't feel like I was hearing a lot of Beatles on oldies, but I would hear a lot of Beach Boys or you would hear like chairman of the board like you know those type of things like i i i always think like oldies are almost like a pre-rock thing like right when like rock was starting to be a thing so yes you would hear like chuck berry or you would hear like the turtles or herman's hermits Mm -hmm. like just the infancy of like rock music kind of things like if you heard the kinks it was like the earliest kinks so I, I know I'm deviating And they weren't from doing the... anything avant-garde either. No, they weren't no, playing yeah. anything that wasn't like a top a top 40 hit. So yeah. like, yeah, they weren't taking a risk on like the weirdo Beach Boy stuff. They were just playing, you know, the hits. Yeah, and you would probably hear good vibrations, but you would hear like the radio edit. You know, like, like, but what, what I was thinking, I was talking with my wife about this, uh, the other day and we argue about it, I guess way too often, um, where like, what is oldies? I feel like the answer to me is there's like a specific programming timeline in the same sense that like, to me, bare naked ladies can't become classic rock because classic rock is a radio programming in the same way that oldies programming. So because if you're saying that bare naked ladies can become classic rock, then you're saying that Led Zeppelin can become oldies, and that can't be the case. I know this totally. isn't like a serious world issue, but no, but totally. you know, yeah. I mean, I guess things become classic as they age, and we could say that bare naked ladies can be a classic band or that they've had a classic hit um, with the one week song. You could say the same about Smash Mouth. Now, I don't know if I could put. I don't think oldies, I think the oldies era for me and my humble opinion would go up until the era when the Beach Boys and the Beatles started doing drugs. So I think the oldies would go until like the mid 60s, whenever the band, whenever bands like mainstream bands like the Beatles and the Beach Boys were starting to experiment with psychedelic drugs and LSD and mushrooms and smoking marijuana all the time and like writing these like super trippy quote, I mean, inventing what psych rock happens to be. So I would take the oldies as like, you know, um, lollipop, lollipop, ooh, lollipop, like that type of shit. And then mm-hmm. like once once artists started to get fucked up and take drugs and stuff, then that moves into another era of like classic rock. I would say would probably happen from like the mid sixties on to like, I mean, when does the classic rock era end? Would you say oh, that, that Genesis is classic rock or the cars classic rock? Um, yeah. What time do we go ahead and do we say that Huey Lewis in the news doesn't get to be classic rock? Whenever you know the power of love and and on those songs are classic rock jammers. Do we take in 
early CCR and leave out John Fogarty for putting out center field. You get into some very dicey waters, especially whenever you are leaving like the classic rock era and you're getting into like late seventies, early eighties, like radio stuff. But I mean, certainly the Eagles have to be in there. Certainly Boston has yeah. to be in there. Certainly the Allman brothers, uh, even, you know, we, I mean, Against my better judgment, I'm sure that you'd have to make room for Leonard Skinner and like even like those Southern rock bands like that, even though, you know, I, I'm not interested in that. Um, yeah, I yeah, I think that's interesting. I would love to have a serious, fun conversation about that sometime. Yeah. Well, I mean, this record definitely is on the other side of oldies. Like it's like the okay. this is like that line, like it's Pet Sounds would be on the oldies station. But Smiley Smile is not in the same way that uh, Sergeant Pepper shouldn't sure. be on. You know, there maybe there would be songs, but I would say that is when they started doing drugs or, you yeah. know, like, you know, any Rolling Pet Stones. That sounds, yeah. sounds is probably on the more experimental. Even that, like they thought Brian was losing his mind and not do it. You know, they thought he was mm -hmm. out to lunch. So like and he was for sure. But like totally like once once Rubber Soul and ab and um once rubber soul came out and 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 the beatles started to, to to play with the sitar and get ravi shankar involved and they were doing all that like far out shit um yeah i think i agree with you i think right around then mid 60s maybe 64 the white album too like the white album didn't come out until later but that is certainly like a milestone album where like y'all are we're trying to get weird too and we're trying to weird you out but definitely there was a shift in how the Beach Boys were making music in regards to um, Smiley Smile, which I'll show for you here. Um, uh, I know that they won't be able to see this outside of the description, but I have an yeah. LP. This is an EMI UK release of Smiley Smile um, that I got at Jerry's Records in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I paid $50 for it. Wow. Um, and I looked for this record for a super duper long time. And um, as you can see, and, and you can validate me, Joshua Robbins, it's in pretty pristine condition. That is um, really good condition. It's the, the, the vinyl itself is 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 absolutely mint. And the, the case here is is uh, the the, um, the jacket is in really great shape too. Um, I, I've never seen I've never seen an original U, U.S. pressing, um, and this was the first time I'd seen a U.K. pressing in the wild. And um, I also have it, and I got that from Jerry's Records in Squirrel Hill um, after Jerry. Jerry Weber, uh, God rest his soul, has passed on to into the great beyond. But there is somebody, Chris, who took over his store and who runs it now. Um, and it's great. You can go in, you can go into Jerry's Records. Anybody who lives um, in the United States of America or Canada, or if you're a record collector at all, everybody knows who Jerry's Records is. It's the it's the one of the greatest record shops in American history. He has like millions and millions and millions of copies of everything, um, and it's just a massively huge warehouse of albums. And I got most of my classic rock, um, and I would say even some, most of my like you know late seventies, early eighties punk stuff there. All the new like new wave records, um, uh, uh, Blondie and the Go Go's to Tom Waits and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. They, uh, they, I, got, I got an original sealed copy of Bucky Fellini by the Dead Milkmen there. Um, oh, wow. I've gotten Black Flag albums there. I, got, I bought mm. a copy of My War there, Black Flag My War. Um, they have a great metal selection and it's an amazing record sh shop. And if you're a record collector and you go 
anywhere close to Pittsburgh and you can stop into Jerry's Records. I highly, you know, suggest that you do so because it'll blow your fucking lid. They have so much cool stuff and just an ocean's worth of it. And the prices are very, very fair too. Um, my second copy of Beach Boys Smiley Smile, which you'll see here, is an original, is, uh, it's not an original cassette tape copy, um, but it is an, a reissue from uh, the early 80s. Um, this is, um, I bought this at the punk rock flea market in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the Roboto from none other than Pittsburgh famous um, emo band front person, Sam Triber from um, Short Fictions. I bought this off oh, of okay. Sam Triber from Short Fictions for $5 at the Roboto flea market. And um, uh, I'm super thankful that I did. They were selling a bunch of cassette tapes and I was like, I've never seen this in the wild. And they were like five bucks and it's yours. And it blew my mind. So that's exciting too. And by the time this podcast comes out, you'll already know that we're doing a tour with Short Fictions this fall. So um, oh, the announcement okay. doesn't come out for a few days, but unless you beat me to it, which you might, um, but if you don't, surprise, surprise, we're gonna go ahead and play some shows. All the way from our, from a reaction, from our, from an interaction of me, Not I mean, I knew Sam Triber before this, but um, uh, I, I will always have Sam Triber in my heart and in my mind because the, 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 the memory that I have of seeing this tape in the wild at a fucking flea market yeah. still blows my mind to this day. I never thought I would ever say, I thought I would pay like 40 bucks for it on Discogs, like like a poser, but I did yeah. find it at a flea market for $5. So that's a super cool, that's like one of my favorite stories too, which is another reason why I'm super excited to talk about this particular album. Yeah, uh, I always have that feeling. It's like, I'll show, I, I bought like, uh, I think like X-Force number one, on, it was like sealed comic. And I showed it to a friend, they were like, you paid that much for it? And it's just that feeling whenever you do that. It's just mm -hmm. like, oh, no. Yeah, so I get that feeling of like, there's like records on Discogs. I'm like, I never see it going down, but I feel like if I buy this record for this much money, then I'm going to see it for like five bucks or something. You know, like it's going to bother me. So I just never buy it. You know, there's a few records that I know that I've over, that I didn't overspend for, but, but I really, really wanted them and I've never seen them ever for a congruent price ever. So when it comes to something like that, there is a um, there's an album by Chad Van Galen who puts out he puts out his records on Sub Pop Records and he mm -hmm. he made a record in 2007 called um, Diaper Island and that record was never uh, was only released in a thousand copies in Canada on Flemish Eye album on on their on their on their record label and I saw it one time when it first came out uh, I was on tour with a band from Alaska called the Scurvies. And I was in Indiana. I was, I think I was in either in Bloomington or Indianapolis. If you, if I saw the record shop, I would know exactly what record shop it was because there was all these really cool paintings on the inside, but I don't mm -hmm. remember the name of it. And I saw the record there one time and I was on tour and the record was $35. And I was like, man, that's too expensive. I shouldn't spend $35 on this record. I'm sure I'll find it cheaper down the road. And I didn't for years and years and years and years and years until I was able to get a copy on Discogs. Um, I traded, it was $100 is what it cost to get it. Um, but yeah. the feeling that you get when you find it in the wild is there's nothing else like it in the world. I'll never forget how I felt. I went to, I went to SPAC Brothers, which is the, um, which is the pizza shop across the street from Roboto. I had, I had a, I had a Philly cheesesteak for dinner. I felt like 
I felt like a million bucks because I found it. I also, one other time, I found a copy of Nas Illmatic in a, in a, uh, at a, at a flea market for a quarter. Um, wow. And uh, that was sick too. That was another rare pickup. And I have that tape. And even that, I mean, of course, you're going to listen to Illmatic forever, but um, I'll always remember even the way that the room felt whenever I found it. Like it, it's, it's kind of like taking a drug that like makes yeah. you remember the 30 seconds before and the 30 seconds after you find something in the wild that those, those memories are like locked in your brain for all time. Um, yeah. So yeah, I like I like to find things out in the wild, and I found I found both of these in the wild, which is sick. So I guess like just thinking about Smiley Smile, yeah. Um, so do you remember like discovering it? Because I I feel like what we're saying is like this doesn't feel like a record that people often go, hey, check out this Beach Boys record. Like it's not it's not kind of the main ones people look at. No. You know, it's it's one you have to discover. It feels totally. Like, you know. This yeah. was a huge market failure. Um, this was after they put out Pet Sounds and were ridiculed for being avant-garde. And then um, I feel this was like Smile was supposed to be Brian's opus, like his big, huge masterpiece, his big, huge, um, uh, the one, the one record that was going to knock everybody on their can. And uh, Smiley Smile came out, I think, as a substitution for that. Um, yeah. I know that there was a lot of resistance towards Mike Love, who was in the band, and mm -hmm. he didn't like all the, um, he didn't like that there wasn't any hits on the record. He didn't like that there, you know, it didn't have, they, they weren't getting the same Beach Boys attention that they were with, you know, the, you know, um, Surfing USA and yada, yada, yada. Um, so I know that there was a lot of tension between especially Brian and, and, and cousin Mike um uh in in the making of this record um but yeah it came out on capitol records um obviously as the rest of as the rest of all their other albums happened to be um and there was like kind of at the time too there was like a race to the weird that the beatles and the beach boys were kind of comparing how far down the rabbit hole they could go in regards to how quote unquote psychedelic or avant-garde or weird they were able to get or willing to get and um i think this you know this was a testament to that time specifically and to see how you could get a major label like capital to put out literally chewing on vegetables as track too yeah yeah i i yeah i had never listened to this before you know you mentioned it and yeah hearing vegetables for the first time was just like whoa as yeah. track two like yeah if you think about it um side a only has one song really which is heroes and villains that's the one it's the opening track it's super weird the changes are bizarre and it it, it, it itself doesn't feel like a song but once you get to track two of vegetables and you're like wait a second this is a skit this isn't a song that's kind of strange and then you get into fall breaks and back to winter and it's just an instrumental it's just it's just like a kids orchestra type of a situation and it's just an instrumental track so like yeah. the first song you're like maybe the first song was the song and then the fourth song is she's going bald and that um that song just changes so quick and like 
it feels like you're just changing a radio dial. Like you get a little glimpse of a song and then you change a radio dial and then you get another little glimpse of a song. So it doesn't feel like a real song either. And then you get the little pad, the, the little pad, which has like the Hawaiian, like the ukulele, like the real dreamy song to end side A. And um, that also isn't a real song. Yeah, so it's, it's not, like it's, it, you're, it's... You're not, there's a, there's a, there's a method. There's like a Beach yeah. Boys, there's a Beach Boys um, recipe that mm -hmm. they often follow in order to get the result that they want, which is what Mike Love likes. He likes the recipe. Mike Love likes to stay on on the on the on the railroad tracks and go in the one direction towards money and success. Where Brian was like, I'm hearing all these super bizarre noises and sounds and voices, even, and I'm hearing like these chords that aren't supposed to go together but do and um i can't get them out of my head and i can't shake them and i have to put them out and this is smiley smile and it was um it was a huge point of contention on the second side side mm -hmm. b they open up that side with good vibrations which is a heralded hit but not made for that record to my understanding and i could be wrong the uh, good vibrations was a solo just a single that they put out as like a palate cleanser from pet sounds because it was so critically um it was so critically uh harshly uh judged even um so they put something that they thought would be like a a, a, a true blue hit out with good vibrations and to their own benefit it certainly was well received. Good Vibrations was on the radio yeah. immediately, and it was a number one hit. And they sold, you know, tons and tons and tons of copies of singles. Um, but to, to to what I understand is that there, there there was such tension because the the record didn't have any quote unquote hits on it that they had to put Good Vibrations on the Smiley Smile album so that people would buy the LP. Because if it was just them chewing on celery and you know fucking around. Nobody wants that. Where's the surfs up? Where's the California girls? Where's the so parts of the songs that like everybody loves that y'all are fucking up on and you're not putting into the mix. So I think they put good vibrations, which is funny to me that they would bury a hit on side two, but I'm, whatever it made the record. That's fine. But the second um, but the second that they could go ahead and get out of doing anything serious, serious, quote unquote serious, is they go into song number, uh, the second track on song on side two with, which is with me tonight. Um, and it goes into these really weird descending like pitch shifts that, um, make you feel awkward and uncomfortable. So you go right from good vibrations. Gotta keep those loving good vibrations happening with her. And you're fucking vibing on good vibrations. And they go right into this super weird glum song with me tonight. And those are the only real words um, to the song. Um, and, and it's mostly just like this weird chanting that goes all the way through it, kind of like mind ready type stuff i don't know yeah. it's an uncomfortable song to go after such a poppy banger um the wind chimes song is also super duper weird and spooky and kind of feels like an alfred hitchcock type of a vibe to it i don't know if this is the time that they were hanging out with charles manson i want to say that it is i know that I, it might have been it might have been before this but i think like during this era of the beach boys and them writing songs 
they were hanging out with Charles Manson. You're probably going to yeah. have to double check that for me. It might have happened earlier or later, but I want to say that it happened around this time. And you can hear spooky weirdo shit. I also think that whenever you hear theremin on these records, especially with Smiley Smile and with Pet Sounds, another thing that I understand is that Anton LaVey, who was the, the, the high priest of the satanic church, um, was the only union theremin player um, and, and I guess in their town or like in that part of California. So they had to hire um, Anton LaVey, the high priest of the satanic temple to play theremin on their record. You're gonna to wanna to double check me on that too. These yeah. might just be old rumors. Well, I, so on what I was looking up when you mentioned that about uh, Charles Manson, I've known that to be like the rumor with it. And one of the songs on one of the singles is credited in 1968. So I would say, being that how quickly these things kind of turned over in this time yeah. frame, they were still hanging out with Charles Manson. I'm not sure the exact years of like, you know, we'll say yeah. like Helter Skelter and all that happened, but that I think that's like 69 or mm -hmm. probably right after this uh, that came out. Yeah. So in 67, yes. And I know that um, Dennis Wilson was the main person that had the friendship with Charles Manson. Like he was friends with him and he was also the only person in the band that surfed, you know? Yeah. Uh, but what makes it really interesting, like, especially with this record, but really all beach boys, as I've gotten older, I find it as much as I like them. I find it kind of hard to listen to because of how much sadness I feel like I sense in all of these songs. Like it's, it bums me the fuck out to listen to Beach Boys. Like, it's like, as happy as it is, it feels like something's... And it, the more research you kind of do with this record, too, like, uh, even, like, Dennis Wilson was saying, like, he was in, he was in like, a facility because he had, like, issues with, you know, substance abuse and uh, depression and whatnot. And they would just... They would play Smiley Smile for people coming down from LSD. And... That would, you know, because like the way the record goes through it, it's it feels like it simulates that coming down. So they'll play it for like patients to mm -hmm. kind of even them out, you know. So it's 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 interesting, you know. Any the kind of the more also too in like pop culture that you hear about Brian Wilson, it's hard not it's hard to listen to it and not kind of like put Brian Wilson's issues with it. You know, so it's hard for me to just be like, oh, this is like a surf's up kind of band. <laughs> yeah. Totally. It's so hard. Yeah. You know? I love that. I don't know why I love it so much, but I do. And whenever you hear something that's beautiful and sad at the same time, um, mm -hmm. that someone was able to, in deep sadness, still be able to create something that is so light and so um, beautiful, even that like, when Brian Wilson talks about, you know, if you should ever leave me, uh, life will still go on believing, but what good would living do me with, you know, if I can't have you and writes like these yeah. super duper, like super sad things, but it's done in such a, um, God only knows what I'd be without you. Um, writes these like very, very beautiful, uh, triumphant even melodies and, and, and complex chord structures. Um, and then sings about in a very beautiful uh, poppy way, singing about like very deep sadness. So I don't know, I feel the same way uh, that when I listen to the Beach Boys, 
I feel kind of the same way whenever I listen to Daniel Johnston, even where he mm -hmm. writes about super sad stuff too. But like, does it in a way where like you believe that he believes that he um, that he believes it? Like you you think you there's no doubt in your mind that 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 Daniel Johnson you know thinks he's writing songs like the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. It, it with like Beach Boys thinking about with Brian Wilson, it feels like. Uh, you're catching him on like an up day, you know, I guess yeah. like manic, you know, there's even like the stories of uh, like Brian Wilson. It's like uh, trying to, I don't know what the actual name of the song is, but he would at parties, he would get people to like form us like a line and they would just for like hours or like an hour just sing like mama love shortening, 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 like these kind of like this kind of almost like folk songs that are mm -hmm. just, that kind of line just over and over and they would just form like a conga line and go around his house singing that for hours that's like the type of person he was but that's like the kind of like the darkness on the other end of that sure. moment is is a I lot think, for me i mean so many people were able to take that and glean from it and like make avant-garde music like there wasn't mm -hmm. nobody was doing weird shit really until this particular time, maybe they were, and I just was out of, you know, that I need to get educated. But like, when I think about like people in the mainstream that yeah, were, mainstream, that were in, 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 bring mainstream awareness to like bizarro music, like this is what I think about. Yeah. And I think that is like the key with it. Like, it's like, yeah, you can find like to us, like obscure because of the age of it now, but once again, this is put out by Capitol Records, you know. So, yeah. and there's a song they spent millions with and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions yeah. of dollars on this in the '60s. So, like, you know, they didn't. They, back then, I don't. I mean, maybe they were. I don't know. But I, I, I think they thought that everything the Beach Boys was going to put out was going to be the next big thing because that's the history that they had with it. And like, I also respect the fact that like Brian was like if we have this opportunity to really make art and we have this we have this chance to really express ourselves and the thing that we need to express isn't surfs up and like running in the sun and fun 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 and yada 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 he's like i'm feeling really sad inside my heart i feel really alone and i don't know where to turn and i don't know who to trust and i i think that Phil Spector's listening in on me through my through through the window and like i'm really you know fucking losing my shit this is what it sounds like. Like I struggle with like always faking it, you know, like mm -hmm. this is a true, like hearing all these weird loops and like how, how, you know, you, you're right. Like these really weird cadenced like choruses that just keep on looping over and over and over. Like that is probably what you hear inside your mind whenever you start to, whenever, whenever he was starting to lose it. And like, I think the best thing he could have done is just been honest to that. And like, certainly, yes, it's a fortunate for him that he was a quadrillionaire and super privileged and, you know, have the world stage at, at his disposal. But like, I also think it was like super duper cool and brave to like make something super duper weird on that level. Yeah. It's, it's strange now to kind of think of like just how, Maybe not us, but we'll say kind of a collective. We we view Beach Boys like it's like it's just like scenes from Full House, you know, like sure. the difference of what this record is based on Kokomo, you know, 
Totally. Like just the night and day difference of like that kind of part in almost every band's career where they're kind of like, I want to push the boundaries. Like you can almost put like any band that sort of is like now, let's say Aerosmith, but it's like even Aerosmith had a point. They had a really good point that was like, but at some point they're like, ah, eh, let's just, let's just play the festival circuit kind of thing. That kind of disconnect of like, then the Mike Love era up mm-hmm. until where we are, like Brian Wilson yeah. kind of eventually basically losing out. Like it's, you know, I don't, when was the last time like Brian Wilson has really played with, beach boys i mean yeah. i saw him on the 50 year anniversary tour of pet sounds mike love wasn't there obviously and i also well, and it was amazing al giardine was there they played mm-hmm. pet sounds front to back and then brian you know they uh, brian didn't play anything he just sat at the yeah. piano with his hands on his lap and sang his parts um so i mean he's still playing those beach boy songs his beach boy songs anyway but yeah he's not playing kokomo he's not he's not Mike loves a motherfucker. I think he sucks like all the way. Like it's my big conundrum with this band because I love the Beach Boys. And I, even if, you know, there's nothing that would be, that anybody would be able to do to detract from their influence. You know, Mm -hmm. there's nothing you'd be able to do to say that they weren't influential. And like, especially on me, like they were super duper influential on like now, whenever I want to listen, if I want to be inspired today, I listen to Smiley Smile because we were doing this fucking talk. And I was like, I should listen to it. And while I was listening to it, I just was birthed a million ideas. Like, oh, this chord would sound, I've been trying to write this song and I'm like, I didn't try to put this chord in there. And then I was like, oh, wait a second. Let me go ahead and go back in there and like work on my own ideas. So for me, it like births a ton of like really unique ideas, like going back there and listening to it. Yeah, I when I listen to this or kind of any music kind of from this era, but especially this album, uh, it kind of makes me always want to be like, I want to write a song like vocals up, you know, because there's so much of this record is just vocals with like an organ kind of just supporting it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, I just want to like get on my computer and just try and like do like you know, building it that way is such mm-hmm. an interesting thing that and totally. so much of this record has that. Yeah. And you can definitely tell too that whenever they were in the production booth, there are certain parts where you can tell that the tape is just cut. Like this idea has expired and a new idea has started. They're they're from two completely different sessions and they just like smash them together mid song. And I I just think that that's cool. It kind of has like a like a medley type of a vibe to it. And like. Yeah, Smiley Smile is one of my favorites. It's one. I mean, I love Pet Sounds, obviously, too. And I would say that I probably like Pet Sounds more. But um, I love Beach Boys, Smiley Smile. I love to listen to it. I'm, I'm, I'm endlessly inspired by it. I don't need there to be hits. I don't need it to be, I don't need it to be radio song after radio song after radio song. I mean, mm-hmm. that's okay, I guess. But like the way that they did this gave so much bravery to people who wanted to make something that's weird. And you can hear Radiohead in in here and you can hear like all, you know, a bunch of other, like you can hear Bjork in here as well. Like other people who made avant-garde music at, at a high level, at a, at, a, at a big, huge commercial industry level. You can hear all the influences in, you know, Smiley Smile for sure. Yeah, like there was a Pitchfork writer, Mark Richardson said, you know, that this album invented lo-fi bedroom pop so like things like sebado especially the early sebado 100 percent wouldn't exist really without like this record Mm -hmm. yeah and there was 
so there was a video I was watching. There's a there was this guy showing like he had smile on an LP, but it wasn't. It was essentially just like a jacket. So Capital printed jackets before they were even done with smile, and this guy had it. And essentially, all they printed like I don't know, five thousand of them or something. They sure. printed like just to kind of like check it out and see what it looks like and everything. Uh, but it just has like kind of fake song names plus good vibrations. But that's just like an interesting thing. They're like after the single came out, they're like we will be getting the record version of this, and just printed a bunch of LP jackets. It's just so funny to like think about now. Sure. Like it's just if your label was like. You know, we're going to print LP jackets for your record that you're not done with, you know, just to kind of feel it out, you know. <laughs> yeah. That would make me super nervous. <laughs> yeah. And it just, like, on the back of it, it's just random song names. It's just he gave them a list of names. Totally. You know, so it's like you're not even, like, really tied to what that would have been. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just, I don't know. It's, it's something that it's like you would never, so that's how much, just kind of showing how much they could just, like, do anything they wanted at that time. Well, yeah, they were definitely like the Amazon of their time, like Capitol Records. I mean, they had all the money in the world. They had all the big artists. They could print 5,000 copies of a jacket in an afternoon and burn them all and not miss a beat. But they were, you know, they were rapidly prototyping all kinds of different uh, uh, advertisements and uh, different types of ways to promote the record. And um, I'm sure, yeah, I don't know. Now to print that many records are super duper expensive and nobody sells that many copies unless you're, you know, big and famous. Um, but yeah, I think that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I know you kind of mentioned it a few minutes ago, but do you feel like this record directly influences like you as you write songs like to this day? And how, how do you see that? Yes. I listen to this record often and I listen to records from this band of this time era often. And you'd be hard pressed to find a band that does um, harmonies better than the Beach Boys. And like anytime I'm working on something and I want to try to, to, to stretch the scope of what I think is possible for myself, I always lean into these Brian Wilson weirdo records. Um, I just think that they, the, the the little ways that they that they just challenge you and like encourage you to you know be a little bit braver than you would be to to just play it safe i just think is um for me is 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 uh yeah i, I draw a lot of influence from it for sure yeah and sorry another question yeah just since i didn't write any questions this is probably where i should write questions um have you ever listened to Dennis Wilson's record Pacific Ocean Blue? No, I haven't. If you're if you like kind of this era of Beach Boys, definitely not as weird, but it has that like sadness in spades. Like it's just like the saddest record, especially with like how what ended up happening with them. Um, I would highly recommend it. So not really a question, but just send me send that to me in the chat afterwards. Send me a link to it, and I'll listen to it. Yeah, it's just. I mean, just that kind of thought of once again, kind of juxtaposing the, just the thought of like beach boys playing. I think I was at the white house with like Mark McGrath, like kind of thinking of that version versus like this, like what it could have been, you know, with like Dennis and Brian and then just the, it just, 
blows my brain apart just thinking about like how different that is i guess age comes for us all though you know or money (laughs) you know so um so okay so what i also want to ask is um so you have some tours coming up i know you hinted at one but you have some big dates with my chemical romance Mm -hmm. and so when did homeless gospel choir start I mean, in 2009, I began playing shows out of my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I started to do just like some cafe type shows around and started to hit the road with some of my friends' bands. Um, so 2009, yeah. So what do you feel like the journey has been from like kind of mainly being like a solo vehicle into like the band? Because I know Mara plays with you and she's been yeah. on the podcast. Um, Shout out Mara Weaver, no big whoop. And what what has that transition been like for you? If you you want to take us to like kind of a quick history of the band, yeah. Um, well, yeah. I just started to play some songs and started to play my songs out, and people liked them pretty good. And I, they would ask me to come back, and I would go ahead and travel and play out of town, and and you'd go to the same place enough that you'd you know somebody from that another part of town would say, well, if you ever want to come and play in Columbus, you can come play in Columbus, and I'd go out there and play the songs and people liked them pretty good. And I would just, I I like to say yes. Whenever people ask me to do something, I just like to say yes. I like to be busy. I like to be involved. I like to keep my hands going. So like people would say, you know, you would get asked from, you know, a friend's band, hey, do you want to go out and do these shows for a week? Sure, I'll do that. And as I continued to do it, more and more people liked the songs. And I was able to go out on my own and do pretty well. And then sometimes, you know, famous people would ask you to go on tour too. So you would go ahead and, and you, I would start it off going on tour with listener a whole bunch. I don't know if you're familiar with listener from Kansas city, Missouri, but I went ahead and I probably pay, played probably 150 shows with them, just opening up their tours and playing, playing a bunch of gigs with them. And, um, in about 2014, well, in exactly 2014, I put out a record on AF Records called I Used to Be So Young, and then I started the tour of Anti-Flag a good bit, and we were pl- we were playing a bunch of gigs together, and we went over to Russia, and we played Europe and, and the like, a whole, a whole bunch, and in the U.S. too. And then from that, you know, other fancy motherfuckers started to listen to it, Frank Iero and Frank Turner and the like, and they would ask me to go on tour with them too. And like, I'm fine. I like to play small little basement shows and and clubs and and bars, but like the big fancy touring is great too. And you're in a bus and you have your own bunk and they cook breakfast for you and and all that type of shit. So like, that's that, you know, I like to do that too. Um, And I I was doing that for quite some time. I was doing that, you know, uh, pretty much all, all the time. Um, from 2014 up until the pandemic started in in, in uh, March of 2020. Um, but even before then, uh, while I was on tour with Frank Turner in Europe, I mean, in the UK, I'm sorry, um, we were out with a band from Canada called Arkells. They're, they're a pop band from, from, um, from Toronto. And um, every night they would come up on stage with me and we would play, a, we'd play as a full band. And I just liked the way that it felt so much more. And I really liked, you know, you're up there in front of all those people just by yourself with an acoustic guitar. It feels strange sometimes. And like, I always thought that I should be in like a ruckus punk band. And then, you know, all the songs kind of lent that lent themselves into that way. Um, 
So yeah, I just, uh, when I was on that tour, I called my friend Matt Miller, who I knew from Endless Mike and the Beagle Club. And I said, this is what I'm thinking. I'd like you to come along. And, um, and that was, you know, that was the first stone, stone's throw. And then at the end of 2017, um, we started to tour together as a full band. And we went out on two tours, one um, with Ramona from Philadelphia. And there are good pals who are on um, Red Scare Records. And then the very next month, we turned around and we did a full US tour with Harley Poe, who writes like creepy Halloween type music, like acoustic horror punk, I guess you can call it. And we did like a fall tour with them all of November. And then, um, and yeah, and now we're just, a, we're five people and we make, um, we make, we make songs together. And in the meantime, you know, My Chemical Romance asked us to go out on the tour because a friend, Frank and I, you know, we're, we're, we're buddies. And um, I was super honored and humbled and super grateful too, to be asked to be a part of that. It's a super fancy thing, much more above my own, my pay grade. And I was super, yeah. I was super grateful to be a part of it. And we're also going to go on tour this fall with Thursday too. We're going to do a big West Coast tour in October with Thursday. And we're going up into Vancouver, as far north as Vancouver and as far south as San Diego. And then we're going to be playing some shows in New Mexico and uh, Seattle and Portland and a bunch in California. We play LA twice. Yeah, you know, it feels like we're playing LA five times on that tour, but we're playing yeah. a bunch of, you know, fancy California shows, you know, where the big wigs are going to be. And then, um, and that's the end of our year. And, and we have, um, yeah, so we'll be out there playing new songs in September and October. Yeah, what I think is like interesting to look back on because it's like, do you remember some? It was called like Pink Couch Sessions. Did you ever yes. do one of those? Yeah, I never uh, did one, but I wanted to do one. I yeah. I sent them a million emails, but I couldn't get an email back. Oh, because I feel like I'm like in my head. I feel like I can remember you doing one. I think it just feels like of that time. Uh, yeah, I did a bunch happen. of. Yeah. There was a bunch of people having you play songs on a couch. So I did, yeah. I did a good bit of that during that time period. Um, and I don't do as much of it anymore because I don't, I don't like the way that I feel when I look at it on the internet afterwards, it makes me feel super self-conscious and I kind of hate it. So like, if it's not at a gig where I'm, I can just make noise and kind of jump around, just me being on a couch playing the song makes me feel like super fucking strange. So I try to lean out of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's also interesting. I guess like kind of comparing it with beach boys it's like thinking about from like 2009 to now it's like sometimes it feels like time goes like so much slower or faster i'm not even really sure what i mean by that but it's like these bands were sometimes putting out more than one record a year Mm -hmm. but it's like that's not the way bands of our of our size really are able to do music. I mean, there's probably a lot to be said with that, like a bigger conversation, but even it feels like mainstream artists aren't really doing that kind of turnaround anymore. You know? I mean, there are certain bands. If you look at like King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, I mean, they're putting out fucking 30 records a year and Parquet Courts are putting out a record every nine months. And, you know, you have bands that are putting out just a ton of content and it's possible if there's infrastructure and money involved. I mean, I'm sure if you would just chain down, you know, uh, turnstile and just force them to write, you know, five records now that they're in like this very specific sweet spot. I mean, I'm sure you could get them to do so. Um, 
I just know for me, I'm, I'm, I'm an older grown up. Um, yeah. so, you know, I'm 39 years old and the people in my band have other career choices too, that they're making. Some people are, you know, Maura is a union stagehand, and Megan is, she's a beautician and, um, you know, not everybody's able to just get together and be in the studio and be creative all the time. And I don't have the, you know, I have other things that I like to do too. So like, you know, so I like, I'm, I'm working on writing a book and I'd like to travel and I like to just, you know, not work all the time. So like for me, sometimes when inspiration comes, I try and grab it by the ass and, 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 um, you know, get a song out of it. But, you know, sometimes inspiration for me doesn't come for weeks or sometimes months at a time. And I got to be okay with that too. But I think if yeah. I was in an atmosphere where there was like producers chasing me around all day and there was a cornucopia of, of, of money to be had by, by record labels and I could, you know, everyone in the band could just be paid to be in a band, then certainly I think we could probably put out two or three killer albums a year. But also too, like, I don't know if it's built to spill, but I think they put out like a record or two every year. I mean, I think they put out like a ton of material. Um, yeah. Some bands yeah. do. I don't know. And maybe some people make a priority because making those songs and like the creative process is so important for them. They always want to be creating and they're always wanting to put out content. I just don't know if I have the energy for that. Yeah, I don't know if I, I definitely do not. Um, but, and it's also like kind of getting to a point where it's like, I'm getting okay with that. But there yeah. still is like this little voice that's like, but you haven't put out, I mean, I haven't put it out a record in kind of way too long, but you know, it's like kind of just like, but I like just watching this movie or this TV show or like going on a hike or, you know, actually spending time with friends, you know, so sure. that kind of trade off with it is is kind of so interesting as you get older. Like I would have probably like it would have been debilitating as like in my 20s. You know? Sure. <laughs> like and just... I think like certain bands, I'm glad they're not making records like. I can say with great certainty that Neutral Milk Hotel is one of the greatest bands ever because they only had to prove it twice with Avery Island and From Airplane Over the Sea. They never mm -hmm. tried to, you know, go outside of that and like make a record that I was going to hate. They went and they left absolutely on top with the best thing that they could do. Even though Weezer has gone ahead and made a bunch of stinkers, like I still think that like they're one of the best too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like, like guided by voices, they put out like what, three records a year or something, you Too know? Much. And then, yeah. And, and it's like, how much of it is good, but it's like, I have nothing to be like, well, I guess if that's what, if there's infrastructure there for him to want to do it and that's how he spends his time, then whatever, yeah. you know, it's like, I guess if Rolling Stones have to put out a new blues cover collection to go hey. back out again, sure. I don't have to listen to it, but you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's strange that kind of turnaround that felt like so different from the sixties era, you know, then there's what something about now. like craving new, new songs and craving new material from artists that you like that are going to be creative and challenge you as a listener. And there's certain bands who are like, you should, guys should have fucking hung it up years ago because I don't need anything after melancholy and infinite sadness. Once smashing pumpkins put out melancholy, y'all could have just hung it up. Truthfully, you might, maybe, possibly have one good album's worth of songs from 1996 to current. So, like, for me, Gish, Siamese Dream, Melancholy, Infinite Sadness is all I need. I don't need yeah. anything past that. And, like, 
I don't think, you know, a door certainly was different. It had like a, I always thought it sounded like nine inch nails, but like, I guess they were trying to be creative and they were trying to push the envelope, but like, it just seemed like lazy songwriting in comparison to the the three juggernauts that you put out prior to that. So like, I'm not, my word is of no authority because I'm so flippant with how I feel about it. Yes, I want you to push the boundaries and yes, I want you to be creative and yes, I want you to challenge me, but then I also want you to make things for certain bands that just make me feel comfortable. Fountains of Wayne is another band that way. Like they sat in a pocket that I loved. Even with Stacy's mom, I don't think they put out any stinkers. I don't. I think all their songs, including Stacy's mom, rules. If you had taken that same song, Stacy's mom, and put literally any other words inside of it, it would have been just as equally as big as a banger. I did. I don't like. I mean, of all the Fountains of Wayne songs that I love, which is their entire discography, Stacy's mom sits low on my on my on my um, on my list, but. As far as like a completist idea, Fountains of Wayne's up there too for me. Yeah, I also think that though it was that was the obvious video they were gonna make, but I wonder if the video hadn't just been like a the the if the video hadn't just been the story of the song essentially, sure. like in the way it was, if we would also like think more critically about it. If or even just if there wasn't a video for it, if we wouldn't have that kind of pop culture thing right. attached to it, so we would appreciate the song differently. I think at that particular time too, in the culture that we were living in, selling cheap sex, sexuality was like the over objectification of the female body was such a big, huge piece of like how things were being sold in that MTV era with bands like Lit and Limp Biscuit and then Jackass and like, just like super non-apologetically objectifying people's looks. And like, that is something that I think is, I don't know, that video just sucks. The video sucks, yeah. I can say that. They're like, if I didn't ever see the video, I think I wouldn't have anything bad to say about Fountains of Wayne. But because that video, in my opinion, is like just low hanging. It's Yeah, it's burned. And yeah, it's, it's, it's also was my first impression of that band. So I feel like I filed them. Which is you know, super duper unfortunate because self-titled and Utopia Parkway are fucking mint. They're, those albums are fucking a champion. They're so good. I really still feel like I really haven't recontextualized uh, Fountains of Wayne because of that video. I would encourage you to do so. And I would encourage <laughs> anybody else who has, who's listening to this podcast, do yourselves a favor and go back to the very beginning, Fountains of Wayne, the self-titled album, and just listen to it. Every one of those songs bang hard. And then if you go into the second one and you listen to Utopia Parkway with um, Denise and all those songs bang super duper hard. And then you get into Welcome Interstate Managers, which has the, the song in question as its feature. If you listen to that whole record and you really are hung up on Stacey's mom, just take that Stacey's mom out of your playlist and listen to the rest of the record with... Um, Mexican wine, that album, I want to go listen to Fountains of Wayne right now. Those albums <laughs> yeah. are so good. And Adam Schlesinger, rest in peace. May he live, may he live in, in paradise for a hundred million years. Um, wrote the catchiest songs of the 90s and 2000s. And I'll put them up against anybody. And that's a fact. Yeah. 
Yeah, he definitely has like his whole discography, even outside of that. The other things like definitely has legs. It's like, you know, but it's it's just hard. And I've I even tried to do that with this podcast. It's like if I get an album from someone that's like, oh, I don't know if I like that, but it's like I want to kind of meet it on its terms. You know, sure. like it was like, you know, I've been we had I had like a gorillas one and I'm like, I don't know. I just can't I can't think of it outside of like mm-hmm. essentially just feeling like that Kia commercial with like yeah. the hamsters, you know, like that's what it felt like to me. But I was like, but what did what did the artist intend? You know, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have to do that with Beach Boys. Like I have a relationship with them, but I think it is important. Uh, even as I say that, it's like I try and also try and pull away from that kind of you know, late eighties into nineties idea of beach boys. And I have to remind myself that, you know, like this, this era exists, you know, this era, this specific era, not even just the early era. Cause that's undeniable, but it's like, there's so much here. So, so what I'm kind of asking then outside of smiley smile, what else in this kind of era, what other album would you suggest by beach boys? Um, pet sounds. Yeah. And Holland, Holland came out. I think. Um, let me check. Uh, let me. Because Wild Honey is right after this. Yep, I would suggest yeah. that too. And there's yeah. another record I think called 2020. Oh yes, yes. That's. that's I think another, that's the one that has the Charles Manson song on it. Yeah, those, 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 that era, those, those other albums I think are right, right in line. Totally. Yeah. And also mm-hmm. too, like. The same type of the same type of stuff that the Beatles were putting out at the same time. If you get into Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and the White Album, and um, uh, Abbey Road, even, and you listen to those songs, and they're they're definitely making they're definitely in competition with each other, trying to write the most far out, weird, avant garde, you know, pop music and stay on the charts. And they 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 were neck and neck, and they were I think. There's an old saying that says iron sharpens iron. And I think that that's what they were going back and like listening to their records and being like, wow, the Beach Boys really had something special here. Let's see if we can't best them on our next go at it. How about it? And they would like, they, I think they would. Yeah. It's really funny too, because uh, in that video I watched, it was like kind of the delay that Capitol Records were talking about between Pet Sounds and to Smiley Smile, but it's like still was a year. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, if it hadn't been delayed, when was Capital expecting Smile to come out? Totally. You know, that's that's insane because it's like if you look at the years, it's like 66 to 67. But then the stories you'll read, it's like, oh, they were waiting for another record after Pet Sounds. And then Wild Honey is in the same year as, you know, Smiley Smile. And then Friends is 68. So it's for every, every year until... 1980 you're getting some new (laughs) yeah some yeah one or two yeah and the Uh, beatles did the same thing the beatles were putting out two albums a year they were dropping they were dropping two records two full-length records a year that's insane were your parents like listening to the beatles growing up totally yeah i something about it like I feel like I've had to kind of forge my own relationship with the Beatles in like the last 10 years. Cause like my dad was into stuff like James Taylor, like more than like the Beatles. So it's just outside of what you heard on the radio, which was still like, you know, it wasn't like a lot of, wasn't the weird era, 
So maybe yeah. you'd hear come together, like I said at the beginning, but you wouldn't hear you wouldn't hear White Album on the radio. And my parents weren't so driving around with your parents, they would potentially be listening to like White Album. No, my parents listened to the Beatles when they were younger, when they were kids. But by the time I was born and and we were in the car, my parents were um, very conservative evangelical Christians and we weren't allowed to listen to the radio at all. So we had no, we had no. We had no secular music. Like when I listened to the Beach Boys at my grandpa's house, it's because I was at my grandpa's house and we were in his basement listening to the radio. My parents, my parents were like, um, yeah, they had a record collection of a few thousand LPs that they all destroyed because um, the the minister told them to. That's also the part that it's. I don't forget that I was raised like really religious and conservative, but sometimes now with this much distance, I'm like, why didn't I have the relationship that it seems that most people do with the Beatles? And then, I, then in this moment, I'm like, oh, that's right, my parents. I were wasn't like, allowed to listen to them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what faith were you raised in, or were they? Just they were just like born again Christians. There was oh, okay, okay. tongues and rolling around on the floor and manifestations of the Holy Spirit and fake healings and 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 passing the offering basket and that's uh, what nah, I had to up. You know, losing their minds. And, and did you ever have the thing in church where someone would speak in tongues and then someone would translate it? Oh yeah, there was a bunch of interpretations for sure. Um, yeah, it was it was super whack. It was super duper whack. Yeah. And um, which is why I think I'm such a rabid music fan now because it was forbidden fruit for my whole life. And now same, it's adult, same way with me. You know? Like I I keep list of like how many movies I watch in a year. Like because it's, it's like, you know, and I've curbed on it some. But like when I started watching movies on my own, like it felt like I was obsessed. And I still like have this obsessive thing. And I think it's because of like, like when I was in like second grade my parents took a we didn't have tv in our house until like i was in like eighth grade mm-hmm. you know and so and then also yeah no secular music unless we could like sneak it sure. you know so, so yeah so you have that that kind of uh that gulf you know which is a strange thing did you go to public school I did get a public school, which was super strange because most of the kids that I went to church with were either A, homeschooled, or B, went to private Christian school. But there was me and my brother and like a small handful of other kids who whose parents were poor had to send their kids to public school. So like I had friends who listened to, you know, satanic bands like No Doubt and um, <laughs> Silverchair. And that's how I found out about, you know, that's how I found out about alternative music. And the cranberries and uh, the cardigans and uh, all that shit. Yeah, that's an interesting thing because I think earlier you were saying something about like, or maybe I'm projecting and you didn't say it, <laughs> but you were like, um, you know, you kind of like feel like a faker sometimes, you know. Right. And I, I think like growing up the way I did in religion, it's like when I started going to public school in like sixth grade, because uh, I went from like third to sixth. It was just basically like just lying to people. They're like, do you watch South Park? And you're like, yeah. And, you know, it's like you just don't lead the conversation. And it's like I didn't know what any of them were doing. I didn't know, you know, what type of uh, pants I should be wearing, you know, to sag in and things like it's like you didn't you just had these gaps and you're just like kind of looking around trying to like mimic 
what other people are into. <laughs> you know, I so just it's so, so weird. lonely. I just wanted to have friends and I just wanted to have things to talk about with my friends. So that's why I started getting into music because all my friends were into it. They're into that and skateboarding. And I was like, yeah. I just am tired of feeling so strange. Like I, I already feel strange because my parents make me believe this thing that I think is crazy. And like, yeah. I'm surrounded by that most of the time. And when I'm not surrounded by it, all I'm thinking about is sin and hell and the devil and the rapture. And all day long, from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed, I'm thinking about Jesus watching me and me misbehaving or sinning and not knowing about it. And then I would become like super consumed with repenting for my sins before I would die in my sleep. Because if you died in your sleep and you didn't repent from your sins, maybe you wouldn't go to heaven too. And then on top of that, like wanting to participate in like this, you know, worldly secular culture of like listening to music and going to the movies and 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 listening, you know, having friends and skateboarding and all this other stuff. And then me knowing that I'm sneaking it. And then me also knowing that the Holy Spirit is watching me and like feeling like I'm, I'm not only lying to my parents, but I'm also lying to God. And then I'm also lying to my friends because they don't know about this super secret culty world that I'm a part of too. So like wow. there was definitely yeah. like, a very extreme um, separation between like where I was, where I wanted to be and what I let people know. So I think it, you know, yeah, it was wild, man. Yeah. It's funny though, looking back on it, uh, where it's like the things though I would have been hiding from my parents would have been like, Oh, I snuck and I watched like mad about you or something, you know, I would have gotten in trouble. So you kind of like it, but it's just sin. You know, and and like I would get this like anxious thing, like you were saying, like, yeah, if you if you didn't repent and then you died, then I'm definitely going to hell because I watched the new Puff Daddy video, you know, from the Godzilla sure. soundtrack or something, you know, and it's yeah, like I just yeah, yeah, and I feel like I have I had to it was, it was like in a video game where you have to like you're constantly saving where it's like repeating repenting nonstop because it's like if i didn't because of the thoughts you know if i thought about south park and then i died then i go to hell you know it's enough to consume you it just riddles yeah. you with fear and then what it really does is it takes away your ability to make cognitive decisions for yourself based on what's best for you in regards to like what you want for your life instead you're making decisions based off of what other people think you're doing yeah it's and and makes you it makes you deceptive and it makes you ashamed all the time yeah it's terrible i would suggest i would say that organized religion is the greatest form of child abuse and i will say that um i think i, I would say that until the end of my days yeah i i feel like we're at this point uh so many years past that uh kind of the remnants of it is i feel like no matter what i'm doing i feel like it's like it's constantly comes across let's say to my wife uh, you know it's like i'm always presenting things in a shady way because i feel like i have to like set it up in a sense that i won't get in trouble for it you know so, and then it's like what you know my wife would be like why don't you just like tell me the thing you're trying to tell me but it's like it's just you're riddled with like this anxiety so, that you're not even really thinking directly about the anxiety it's just kind of how you you've your brain's been set to just present things to everybody yeah so Religion is really fucked up. In that yeah, I, I would suggest against that. I, I have some friends who are religious who I think, you know, as long as it makes you, I guess if it makes you a better person. It's not for yeah. me. 
if it makes you more kind and gentle and peaceful and patient and 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 makes you more kind towards neighbors and strangers then you know if that's what you call religion then that's sick i think i fuck with you all the way but if it's making you like a you versus them us versus them type of a situation and you're out there trying to convert people because you think that your ideas are the best and everybody else has bad ideas i don't know maybe maybe religion's not good for you maybe you shouldn't be um you know maybe you shouldn't i don't know <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean i've i've kept you uh for a while now but before we go where can people find you online well, we have an active website. Um, if you go to www.thehomelessgospelchoir.com, that website is active. You can go ahead to it and click on the links and it'll show you where our shows are. And um, sometimes we have souvenirs in the souvenir stand where you can go ahead and get a t-shirt or a record. And then sometimes we don't. Um, and you can also go there and you can subscribe to our mailing list. Um, you will be one of thousands of loyal subjects gathered around the globe who weekly get an email or sometimes not weekly sometimes it's whenever i feel like it and you'll get an email not more than once weekly in your inbox and it'll just be for me and i'll just say hey what's up buddy how's your life and you know we have some shit going on i hope you know about it do you have an extra 20 bucks do you want to buy a t-shirt sick and it'll just be like things like that um and we'll talk about sometimes we talk about current events and sometimes we talk about poetry and art, and sometimes we don't talk about anything. Sometimes it's just a, um, um, you know, like a tour update or whatever. But yeah, go to www. That's the World Wide Web dot the Homeless Gospel Choir um, dot com, and you can um, you can get all the information you need from there. You can also go onto the internet and use Google. And if you just Google search the Homeless Gospel Choir, it'll give you a whole bunch of things too. Some are true, some aren't true. You're going to have to find that out for yourself. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so very much, Joshua Robbins. You've been a treat and um, an absolute gem and a delight. Um, make sure everybody out there on, on Internetville is listening to that Beach Boys Smiley Smile album. Don't, don't, don't shortchange yourself. Life, is sh life, life can be terrible and lonely, but this Beach Boys record, I'm sure, will give you plenty to think about. Welcome back. Thanks again to Derek for coming on the pod. Stay tuned for the new Homeless Gospel Choir album out later this year on John Giovanni Records. Also catch them this fall on tour with My Chemical Romance and Thursday. Next week, we're talking with Juan Chi of the band Zeta. We talked about Mars Volta's 2003 album, D. Louse and the Comatorium, so tune in next week to check that out. Once again, check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinning out pod and don't forget to follow us on twitter and instagram please rate review and subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify wherever you do that sort of thing reviews definitely help like i said at the top definitely check out your local abortion access funds i would recommend donations for abortion.com that's donations the number for abortion.com anything you can give sincerely helps right now thanks as always to sarah blumenthal for editing the pod and pretty maddie for the theme Okay, see you next week.